Welcome everybody to the Wright County GOP podcast. Um, today we have uh, quite possibly one of Wright County's most favorite people. Sheriff <laughs> Sean Derringer is going to chat with me for a little while about uh, a slew of questions I've thought of and then I'm guessing we will delve off into a number of different things uh, as we chat about this and that. Um, but as always, I have to start off um, by saying that anything we talk about in here, uh, the views, the opinions are those solely of myself, Daniel B, I'll go by, or Dan B, and the sheriff. So they are not representative of the executive board or the general board in any way. These are our opinions. Um, yes, that is our official disclaimer. But without uh, any further ado, we're just going to get right into it. Um, Sheriff, how are you? Fantastic. Thanks for that, uh, you know, that intro. I don't know if it's very deserving, but oh, uh, certainly um, by, by God's grace, go I each and every day. So thank you for the kind words. Yes, yes. Not a, not a problem at all. Uh, let's start with where did you grow up? I was born in South Dakota and grew up in Harvey, North Dakota. My family moved to Harvey. My dad uh, was a entrepreneur and business owner. He was a sheet metal journeyman by trade, oh. and my parents owned the Harvey Heating and Cooling. So Harvey, North Dakota is where I, um, we moved there when I was five, and I graduated high school there. Oh, so okay. sent right in the middle of the state. Okay, when, uh, when did you get to Minnesota? I was recruited, actually, to play football for the Northland Community College in Thief oh. River Falls, Minnesota, and never ended up playing football there. I uh, had a football injury in high school uh, during my senior year that prevented me from doing that. Uh, but that's where I started school, and uh, the more I got into the law enforcement program there, the more, I don't know, you, you have some folks that have consternation as they're going through high school and trying to figure out what they want to do, and I think that, you know, I kind of came to the realization, well, that actually, I'll, I'll try to remember where I left off here, but it really started for me um, when I was a freshman in high school. Uh, my dad had a severe heart attack and stroke and actually spent three months in intensive care and uh, they sent him home to die and said that uh, make yourself comfortable you won't be alive at Christmas and that was uh, the summer of 1987 and to, to this day my dad is a walking miracle every morning he wakes oh, up awesome. and so at, at first when I came to uh, my career choice I was going to I went I was going to go into nursing and I actually took a health occupations class in my junior year of high school. And after cleaning out a couple of bedpans and doing a sponge bath, <laughs> I decided that that was not going to be my career choice. Um, but uh, law enforcement seemed to be an avid fit. I actually uh, had befriended a couple of my local officers in my hometown of Harvey. And they had just kind of taken me under their wings. And I'd jump in and I did a couple of ride-alongs. Um, to Harvey, North Dakota. It's population 2,500. There wasn't a great deal going on, but I was actually a waiter in a supper club in town. And so they would come in a lot of times and have dinner and coffee. And I would uh, spend some time chatting with them and thought that that would be an avenue. So 
when I got to Northland and I got into the law enforcement program, um, I absolutely fell in love with it. And every class that I took, it's like, yeah, this is this is my dream, and it's it's happening right in front of me. And so, actually, uh, go back to high school between my junior and senior year of high school. My current now wife Tammy and I met. She grew up in Fezzan, North Dakota, which is 17 miles apart. And so we started dating that summer. And so we, we uh, maintained our relationship through college. And she was at the University of North Dakota in Grand Forks. And between Thief River and Grand Forks, it's about a 50-mile difference. So we'd spend weekends together. And after I graduated with my two-year degree at Northland, I transferred to the University of North Dakota because we were engaged by that time. And so I finished out my bachelor's degree at the University of North Dakota. So that's kind of how all of that worked out. So how many years have you been in law enforcement? Do you know that question? I am, I am in my 28th year. Wonderful. Yeah. Nice. I started with the Buffalo Police Department and oh, yeah. um, yeah. started with Buffalo and moved to the sheriff's office in 1997. And I've never looked back. Awesome. Um, I know you and I have talked before, but you have quite the impressive background of different training uh, in schools, if I remember correctly, right? Take us through that. Like, you've been off to Quantico for stuff, correct? Yeah, twice. Okay, yeah, take Quantico. us through all of that, because I remember being very impressed by that. I'll, I'll have to take a deep breath. I, I have, I've had a, there's no doubt, you know, and it's interesting because, so the way we ended up in Wright County, Minnesota is about two weeks before my wife graduated college with a business management degree, she did mock interviews. And while she was going through the interview, mock interview process, there was actually an executive with Target Corporation there and um, she came up to my wife afterwards and said, um, we're doing this down at the down in Fargo the following weekend. Here's my business card. I would love for you to come in and interview for a job. And so my wife did do that the next weekend and was actually offered uh, an executive position with Target a week wow. before she graduated from college. <laughs> and so Target's got a program called Business College within the store, and she started in the Grand Forks store and, and uh, was trained in. And then after the training, um, they are sent out or offered positions, open positions within Target at various stores. And she was offered a couple of keeping in mind we grew up in central north dakota the, her first two uh transfer options were brooklyn center i believe and then northeast minneapolis mm. and she quickly said uh no to both of those <laughs> and um so then about a week later 10 days later they came back with buffalo minnesota and so i still remember the first time coming down here from grand forks to to buffalo to to see if this was a place that we could call home. Uh, we were married by this time. We got married between our junior and senior year of college. And so uh, we came down here and realized, wow, we absolutely love the area, love the community. But fast forward, you know, we moved down here based on a transfer uh, with my wife's work and fell in love with the place, but we didn't know anybody within 300 miles of Wright County. And so as I became, um, ingrained into the law enforcement world uh I, I consider myself extremely blessed you know it was there was there was no family name that came with us and so to your point about my education some of that comes through my career 
So uh, in 97, I started with the sheriff's office. By 2000, I was selected to um, go into the drug, at the time it was called the Drug Task Force, now it's the Special Investigations Unit. And, uh, and so that was in 2000, and keep in mind in 2000, that was the height of the methamphetamine mm-hmm. meth lab <clears throat> epidemic, and Wright County was the epicenter for that. We're, we were rural enough where people felt comfortable cooking meth in their garage and their shed in the backyard, um, but we were forceful enough that we, we, we dealt with it very successfully. And um, but about a month after getting into uh, narcotics, uh, I was approached by my sergeant at the time and asked if I would go out to Quantico, Virginia, to the DEA headquarters where they were training law enforcement officers from around the country. And so when I came back to Minnesota, I think I was probably one of five or six meth lab certified investigators in the entire state of Minnesota. So I tell people I spent the next two and a half years working narcotics, but we were chasing labs all over central Minnesota from north of St. Cloud to, you know, Meeker County, Candy, Ohio County. And uh, I remember taking down a, a lab one night in Atwater. And so when you had, you know, the ability to do that, um, you, you were called all over the state. And so it was, uh, it was a ton of fun and just taking advantage of those opportunities that presented themselves. And so after spending two and a half years in narcotics, I was transferred to general investigations as a detective. And I did that for about a year and a half. And then in 2004, I was promoted to sergeant. I spent the next seven years as the overnight watch commander. Um, having a, at that time I had a ton of fun and, and I say it was, it was kind of really a a blessing and I don't want to, I don't say this to undermine, um, the environment of the office, but really to be outside of the administration, Mm -hmm. kind of doing your own thing out on overnights, you know, with, uh, you know, the set of people that I had out there, we just had a lot of fun and, you know, we have, we have, we've always had lines of accountability here and there's the way that we do business and conduct ourselves. Um, but within those parameters uh, as, a, as a new sergeant. And then, you know, that's really where I gained a lot of my experience in, in dealing with people. Um, that was really a, a wonderful opportunity and certainly a springboard for the rest of my career. Mm-hmm. So then in 2011, I was again promoted to lieutenant. And uh, it's interesting, I never came into this career thinking, I, you know, some people have aspirations to be a detective. That was really never one of my aspirations. I, I love being a, a patrol cop. Uh, but thinking back over the course of my career, in fact, when the, the CID spot was offered to me, I told the sheriff at the time that, you know, if that position had been posted, that I probably wouldn't have put in for it. Um, he was making some moves throughout the office at the time, and, and I was part of that. And obviously, I already had the experience from working a caseload uh, in narcotics that he, he needed my skill set to be moved into that direction. Um, but I really never had that intention. So after getting promoted to lieutenant and going back into CID, I've spent now over half of my career in CID. And that was never actually a direction that I thought that uh, I would spend my career. So it's just interesting how God works those things out for you. But um, anyway, so then I, I did that in 2011 and I spent the next several years there. And that was when the opportunity of the FBI National Academy came up. Um, it was in 2014 
Um, I was recommended late 2014. I was recommended by actually a former deputy of Wright County, um, was a current FBI agent at the time, and with his recommendation, my name got popped up to the top of the list. Um, there's been, as I found out once I was out there, there were some people out there that had actually put in for that opportunity for 10 years before they were selected. And literally, it was a one-time application for me. And so by January of 2015, the FBI was out here uh, doing a background investigation on me, and I was selected to attend the 261st session of the mm-hmm. FBI National Academy, which was the summer. So it was the week after July 4th of 2015, and I was gone until the end of September that year. So obviously, I have a very strong wife at home that was able to take care of our uh, two young kids at mm-hmm. the time. And uh, we were able to, to make that work. It was not very pleasant being away from my family for 11 weeks, but um, what a blessing in my career. And certainly, in, given my position today, um, it certainly uh, was well, well worth it. And I still have contacts um, through that. In fact, it was just about a week ago, I was texting my roommate, um, who's in law enforcement in Ohio, um, we were texting back and forth. So it's some of those relationships that have been developed. So anyway, making a long story short, so um, <laughs> I was moved from the CID lieutenant to the administrative lieutenant role in 2017 and or 16, seven, beginning of 17. And by the end of 2017, I was promoted to captain and um, put in back and then I became back in the patrol division. I was the patrol captain. And then obviously early 2018, the sheriff announced that he was not going to seek reelection and which opened up the seat. And so literally he announced uh, January 31st. I remember the date because it's my wife's birthday. And he announced that he was not going to seek reelection. And so I think by February 17th of 2018, I had my campaign kickoff event mm-hmm. at uh, the V in Maple Lake. So, and then the rest is uh, all, all very, very much in the history books, but uh, all very public. So yep. you can still go back to my Facebook page um, and and read all about it. So <laughs> that was uh, quite the busy, quite the busy year. But um, so obviously I was elected in 2019. I started my first term and. And now as we sit here, well, I'm about six months into my second term. So okay. I feel very yes. blessed to be yep. sitting in there. But, yeah, to have the education and the experience. And I didn't uh, mention some of the minor things, but I was a firearms instructor for the better part of 15 years um, until uh, in my lieutenant role. I just didn't have time to, to be out on the range. I was the first taser instructor for Wright County. I was the uh, less lethal instructor. Um, and so I've had a lot of really cool opportunities and certainly with them have come education and, and certification. So I think I've, I've just had a very blessed career as long as I've been here. Uh, what are, how, how long are the terms for sheriff? They're, they're four year terms. Four year terms. Yeah. How, uh, how many do you think you have left in you? What is your, do you have a, <laughs> do you have an end game, an end in sight, or are you just going to do this? 
until you're 75. No, no. There's 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 more to life, uh, I think, and uh, we'll see what what God has in store for me. But I I've always I've always told my people that I was a two term guy. If I was given the opportunity to to run for sheriff, um, I think that it's it's such a it's a big job, right? And there's just so many responsibilities. And and to give a lot of credit to my predecessors, my predecessors have always had just a, such a deep conviction to serve the people of Wright County uh, with dignity and respect. And they have always maintained um, a very positive pro relationship with the community and reputation of the sheriff's office. And so to make sure that we want to carry that vision and message forward for the next generation or the the next two generations to come. Certainly, um, I don't take that lightly. So it's a busy job. It's a big job. But I think for me, I recognize that everyone has a shelf life. And I think that, you know, you you come in, you try to make your positive impact um, in the office and the culture and the vision. And then, you know, you, 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 you leave a good place for someone else then to come in with uh, another, um, you know, they bring that new vibrant energy and, mm-hmm. you know, certain things. It's like, it's exhausting some days. And, you know, just for someone else to come in with that excitement that I had four years ago. And I think that to this day, every day I come in, I, I have that excitement and I bring that energy but you just know that you can't carry that for for years. And some people do, and I give them a lot of credit for that. Um, but I think that I also recognize, Dan, um, my family's also sacrificed a lot through oh, yeah. my career. There's been a lot of times that I've missed out on family times. And, um, and so I think that this is an opportunity, the good Lord willing, I survive, you know, this term. Um, so I'm, I'll be 55 and a half at the end of this term in Minnesota. You can retire at 55 without penalty. And so I'll have 31 years in at that time. And so that's that's a good end point. And, and I don't think I completely retire. Like I said, we'll see what, what doors are open by the good Lord uh, when, when I do say enough is enough here. Uh, could it be somewhere in the public safety sector? I, I'm not sure about that. You know, I think that um, there there will be opportunities of volunteerism that we can do and and uh, obviously doing some travel. But I think for me, uh, to answer your question, this will be my last term. I haven't been, the, the folks here know that it's my last term, but I haven't been overly public about that. But um, it, it's a good end time for, for me, and I'm going to continue to invest here for as as long as I'm here I don't I'm not looking at my end game yet I don't really necessarily talk about it a great deal Um, but that's to answer your question this will be my last term it's a two-term or I I always said that I would be a two-term person and someone else can take over and and bring that new level of energy to the job because it deserves that it truly deserves Mm -hmm. that and Hopefully there will be some time on the backside of this that I can uh, give back to, to my family a little bit and spend a little bit more time with them. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I just want to throw this scenario out, though. You go until you're 78, and then you run for president of the United States. Because <laughs> I believe that is something that is a thing now. <laughs> you know, and I, I don't know. I, I... <laughs> you can just say no. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That was um, 
you know, you, you, you look at the polarization of politics today, and obviously your, you know, your audience here is the Wright County BPOU, and, and I appreciate the perspective a great deal, and, and most people that are probably going to be listening to this are very much into the, the politics. Um, but to be in politics, you see just the divisive nature of it. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's going to be some people that listen to this and say, oh, man, I don't I didn't like that. Or I, I, I really like that, but I didn't like this. And so there's just the divisive nature to politics today. And, <laughs> yes. and everybody's yes, got some is. thoughts on it. So I don't think that uh, politics, I, you know, I've been asked about a political future. Um, beyond sheriff and and again i i don't think that i'm necessarily closing doors if you ask my wife she will be very pointed um that my political career will be over when i retire as sheriff um (laughs) she she said if i if i do politics beyond uh this term that i'm (laughs) that i'm on my own okay Uh, she's that's that's a sane woman yeah very much so it's yeah and it's also the same woman that's been on our living room floor crying a couple of times because there is just some hate that comes along with the responsibilities of this job so she's she's lived it along with me um i tell people she's my she's my rock and it's it's pretty special um when we went in this together we we opened it we 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 did this through prayer and that's what you know got us through this Mm -hmm. and um but to have somebody that's walked this this um, road with me that's been pretty special and I think that uh, one of the positive things that we've heard from our staff here at the sheriff's office is it's been really cool to have Tammy so involved in the, not the operations of the sheriff's office but the social events of the social uh, of the sheriff's office and that's pretty special I know that there's she's made herself very available you know obviously we've had critical incidents in the last few years and you know she's one of the first ones to reach out to at least the spouses of the deputies that are affected awesome. and saying hey I'm here if you need an ear I'm, <clears throat> I'm here for coffee I'm here for dinner whatever it looks like mm-hmm. And so um, she's been very involved in, in that respect, and, and I'm, I'm very proud of that. And I'm, I'm proud to, to have her as my partner through yeah. this journey. Oh, I, oh, and I feel like she would appreciate this when we saw you at the Buffalo Days Parade uh, when you drove by. Uh, my wife asked who was in the car, and I said, well, I, that was his wife. And my wife said, what is she, 25? <laughs> so I feel like she would probably appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> yep, um, I, I get that a lot. Yeah. And she's actually laughed at my daughter a couple of times because um, people have made the comment they they believe that she's, you know, sisters uh-huh. to my daughter. So <laughs> my daughter and future son-in-law were the backseat passengers at the parade. Uh, oh, yep. Yeah, so sure, sure. they've actually made two of the parades with us so far. They were at Elbertville uh, mm-hmm. last weekend, and then Buffalo this last weekend. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> it's been it's been fun. Um, <clears throat> so you spoke at our BPOU meeting in April, uh, and you went over some things, and I thought it was interesting because you kind of had you were we were in a time crunch a bit, you know, but you can talk as long as you want. Now, uh, take us through the gun laws that you spoke about uh, at our meeting. And I think you had, I think you talked briefly about th- three, was there three or four, but 
Yeah, so, yeah, that was like two months ago, my, my talking points. I don't have the exact numbers anymore, but mm-hmm. two of them were defeated. or not. I don't even think defeated. They just never really made it out of committee. But mm-hmm. we, I'll, I'll say we got stuck because I believe that we got stuck with two. And, um, you know, I guess just for the audience, and it doesn't matter who's listening, I was not an advocate for any more gun laws, uh, Mm -hmm. right? Laws are created for those people that abide by the laws. And unfortunately, the folks with guns that we're concerned about are already the folks that have a propensity not to abide by the law. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what we're facing. And I, I don't know why... Uh, guns have become so demonized in our culture today. Obviously, they've been a weapon of choice for some folks that are looking to do nefarious things. Um, But guns themselves have become very demonized. Um, But I do have a a true appreciation for them and uh, a true respect for those that abide, you know, want to carry out their Second Amendment rights. Um, We in the law enforcement community, I think, are very supportive of that. But sometimes our politicians get in get in the way of things. Uh, so the two that we did uh, get stuck with is obviously the well, I'll call it the the red flag law. It's not yeah. they were very careful not to use red flag. Um, but uh, you know I've said many times that I believe that 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 is going to be weaponized. Um, it's going to be weaponized. I think that there's a practical purpose, and I think that, you know, that's why God's ordained the family, and that's why family is so important, because if there is somebody struggling with mental health and they are a danger to themselves or others, I believe that that's an avenue for the family to step in. I don't believe that the courts need to step in, but unfortunately, our society is in such a place right now where we don't have those strong fam, that strong family core, and we don't have maybe that family that is willing to step in and, and do something about it, unfortunately, then the courts come in. And uh, so I believe to a small degree that there will be some, some benefit for people, but it doesn't stop somebody uh, to go out and get another firearm from uh, an illegal source on the streets. And unfortunately, that's what you're going to face. And, mm-hmm. and I think that I, I mentioned it at the BPOU meeting. I, I think that I'm, I've never kept anything for my wife, but if I stacked out, um, you know, all but three of my guns on a table, she'd say, yep, that's it. Well, not realizing that I had three more stuffed up in the heating, you know, my furnace or, you know, (laughs) I don't want to give people any ideas about a hiding place, but, you know, I could have, you know, a handgun or six stuffed up someplace that you're never going to find them in the home. And so there is no way. So they, once again, our legislator, legislature created another law that to the nth degree, again, cannot be enforced. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they themselves will not be the ones going effectuating a court order to somebody's home. You know, you might come across, and there are those people out there that this could be the hill that they die on. And unfortunately, now law enforcement is caught in the middle of enforcing a court order um, to take someone's firearms, knowing that we may or may not be getting them all in the first place because we're gonna we're going to be acting in good faith that they are saying that yes this is all of my firearms so we have no way of verifying that in our current system and and so that's what we're stuck with so that's uh, was, there was a sec or did you go through both no the red I, flag and then the one more and then it's the universal background checks oh yeah Sorry. and uh, and again. Um, t- <laughs> 
the, the universal background checks are only going to affect those of us law-abiding people that aren't going to be down at name an intersection in USA mm-hmm. um, that you can get either a stolen firearm, you're going to trade it for drugs, you're going to buy it for cash on the street. Um, those people that are willing to commit a felony by burglarizing your home and taking your firearms are not going to care about a gross misdemeanor by failing to to register this yeah. through a proper authority. Yeah. And so this is what we're stuck with is there's there's still no way to control the illegal firearms that are going to be out there and laws fall short of that. So, yeah, uh, I completely agree. Um, the other thing you spoke about were the dropping like these staggering, terrifyingly low numbers all over the state in police departments. Go through that again, what you, what you talked to us about, and well, some of the situations that are going on, if you feel comfortable. Yeah, yeah, I think, well, if you realize since 1980, there have been over 200 police departments in Minnesota that have either um, collaborated with another city or uh, disbanded their police department and began contracting with the sheriff's office. So 200 agencies in the matter of the last 40 years. That, that alone is staggering, but I think that it's uh, certainly ramped up in the last, um, let's say, I mean, three years, you, you see uh, a very downward trend of people coming into this industry. And so, uh, Wright County used to be very unique across the entire United States. It was King County, Washington, uh, and Wright County Sheriff's Office, Minnesota, that did the contracting. Uh, Wright County, Minnesota, we've been contracting since since the, the theory came up in 1969, and we officially entered into our first contract with the city of Cocado in ni- 1970. Hmm. Excuse me. So we've been doing it for the better part of 50 years now. And uh, so I think by 1973, we were contracting with four, four cities. And since, since 1973 to since I began my career, we've been contracting with every city in Wright County, with the exception of Buffalo, Annandale, and Howard Lake, who continue to maintain their own police departments and successfully do so. And so I think that that number you see in the last couple of years, I know one of the bigger cities uh, in outstate Minnesota that I know of was Morris PD. Um, they're a college town, and they were down to one officer left, and they have now uh, disbanded the police department altogether and began contracting with the Stevens County Sheriff's Office. Um, you have um, other police departments that are in in peril right now. I know that talking to the Washington County Sheriff um, the last couple of months, uh, St. Paul Park is down to two officers, a chief and an investigator, and they're at fully staffed. They're a nine-person department, and so uh, the Washington County Sheriff's Office has been contracting or covering at least their calls for service for the mm-hmm. last couple of months. And one of the the big ones that has received a lot of news attention is Golden Valley Police Department. Their uh, authorized strength is 33, 33 full-time cops, and I think the last I had a head count, there was probably four or five left there. And so the Hennepin County Sheriff's Office has been contracting with them. 
And so when you look at Wright County and the responsibilities to, to bring it back home, and, and maybe I'll, I'll give you some more uh, examples. So um, right now, uh, it's, and this is held really true for about the, the entire last year, there's 12 to 1,500 law enforcement jobs open across the entire state of Minnesota. So for those people that are looking for opportunities, whether it's geography, they want to go up to uh, northern Minnesota, southern Minnesota, or they grew up in Rochester, they want to go back there those opportunities now exist and so we have to be very competitive in the marketplace the other reason we have to be super competitive in the marketplace is there is not enough people coming into our industry right now if you if you go back to three years ago uh, post george floyd and you had the rhetoric of defund the police and things like that and that just carried through um you know it's really unfortunate uh, but if you consider that you have 12 to 1500 current cop jobs open across the state, PARA um, estimates that another 1500 will retire in the next five years. Um, all of last year, there were 540 people that took and passed the post test. So you can see that the industry itself is not sustainable at this time. So right now, um, the, the agencies that are able to hold on right now are just trading personnel mm -hmm. and uh, it's become super competitive so we have to we have to stay competitive in the marketplace to be to be successful and so uh, I, I had a great deal of consternation myself and you want to ask for you know why what what causes me to lose sleep this is this is part of it you know uh, there was there was a we've operated for about the last 16 well six months we have been 16.85 deputies short. And so we're starting to get caught up and we're kind of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but again, um, st staying competitive in the marketplace is going to help us sustain. So if you look at agencies like Golden Valley, um, their police department is failing. Um, St. Paul Park, I don't know what the future of these agencies are, look like and how they're able to recruit Brooklyn Park, Brooklyn Center. Those agencies have, have been hurting for quite a while as well. And so what is it going to take to get their numbers up? Well, in the meantime, they have leaned on a sheriff's office to come in and contract where we are already contracting with our cities. We're kind of the, we're the stopgap, right? And so I, I, I don't think that it's in our ability to fail because if we fail all of these cities are also failing and mm -hmm. what does our quality of life in Wright County look like I don't want our businesses to be burning down I don't want our businesses to have the glass smashed out every night you know what is mm -hmm. the quality of life that that we strive for to raise our families in Wright County and so I think that's why I've, I've taken the positions that I have because I, I consider it a an honor to serve uh, but B, it's a it's a huge responsibility being at, at the captain's at the captain's seat right mm -hmm. now to not fail. Um, our 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 way of life in Wright County is dependent upon us providing public safety to our people of Wright County. So. Yeah. Um, another thing that I that you brought up at that meeting that I thought was really interesting was the Kim Potter versus Derek Chauvin scenario, and which one really made the really made the numbers kind of, or at least made people very uh, hesitant. Uh, right. Talk about that. 
Yeah, this is where, you know, this is certainly something that can get me in trouble. <laughs> you know, you have uh, Derek Chauvin um, with Minneapolis who, you know, and I, I don't know. It, it's hard to talk about that in, in certain contexts, but what I will say about that is he kind of made that bed, right? He mm-hmm. seemed so indifferent. That thing was, I mean, both of those circumstances were caught on video but Derek Chauvin seems so indifferent to the well-being of George Floyd. Mm-hmm. I think we can all recognize, you know, and I think that that's a problem and it followed through Kim Potter, is society isn't taking any responsibility in this. You're not taking the the actions or you're not taking into account the actions of the suspect in that relationship, right? Mm-hmm. There, was re- there was actions done by both of them that put them into that situation, but there's no accountability on that side at all. The uh, the accountability solely rests in the hands of law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that's very fair, um, but you take the um, Derek Chauvin example, and I think Derek showed just a, a complete lack of care and compassion um, for somebody that was that entered a, a time of distress. Mm-hmm. And there was just... Um, no care taken to um, to take care of his needs at the time. And uh, obviously, I, I, I wasn't there, and I'm not in his shoes. And so I, I caution myself um, about being so outspoken when I was not there. But the whole thing was captured on video. Obviously, he's since been convicted, and he's he's doing present, present prison time. But I think for, 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 for me, any cop that watches that could say, Ooh, what are you doing? You know, mm-hmm. that, that's not, that's not, that's not living up to our job. I mean, our job is to, to, to take care of people and we failed in that situation mm-hmm. where I think the Kim Potter one is so starkly different um, because I can, I can state that there was a grave, grave mistake made mm-hmm. But again, there was no count accountability. That kid was out of the car. If he would have complied and been handcuffed, that thing would have been resolved and he may still be alive today. Um, but there's no accountability there. You fight with the cops and then there's there's and, and I and I can sympathize with this. I've never made a mistake to that degree. But you're fighting with somebody and you're rolling down around the, the ground. And there's been several times where I've been looking for my set of cups. I mean, they take, you know, uh, dexterity and motor movement is a thousand repetitions because before it comes out, before it comes automatic. Mm-hmm. Well, why do we train, train, train? That's why we train. And there's certainly a commitment that we make to know our equipment and know where it is. But certainly um, early on in my career, there was times that I'm fighting with a suspect and I'm, you know, reaching for my can of mace and I just can't seem to find it or manipulate it and get it out of my belt. Right. And so I think that, you know, she even says taser, 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 which we're trained to do. She fully believed in that stressful moment that she had a taser and it would have been fully appropriate at that time to use it unbeknownst to her. She grabs the gun instead. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that really that really caused a lot of cops to step back and say, all right, no other industry in the entire world can you make a split-second decision out of an intensely stressful situation like that and it costs you your freedom and, and separate you from your family and spend, you know, years in prison. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, does 
does Kim Potter ever be a cop after that moment? No, probably not. Did she belong in prison? Not for a second. Not for a second. Mm-hmm. And but you know when we when we start, um, you know, um, if, if you start listening to the court of public opinion, that's when we get in trouble, right? Mm-hmm. You have to let the process play out. And I think one of the most frustrating things for me in the law enforcement industry is we're afraid of these flashpoints, right? Our society's turned into a bunch of flashpoints. You have something that makes the, the, the news, at, you know, that happens at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, by 6 o'clock at night, burn, you know, buildings and vehicles are catching on fire and there's mobs of people everywhere. Well, we've lost the ability to trust the system and let the system take care of it itself. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, and, and I don't fault people for demanding justice, uh, but that's all, all, all of a sudden become a hashtag that... Um, I don't think society is sustainable if we lose trust in the system, and that's what we're doing today. And that's why it's so difficult being in this industry as we're responding to a series of flashpoints and we're waiting for the next flashpoint. And who wants to stand on a line 16 hours a day, go home for eight, and stand on the same line 16 hours the next day, protecting whether it's infrastructure or you know people, and the most disgusting, vile things are being thrown at you and spewed at you and, you know, said to you on a personal level. And again, it's, it's not, you know, to not take it personally. It's hard to not take it personally because you're the one on the receiving end of it. Mm-hmm. But it's the uniform and what we, what we represent. Um, but it's hard to not take some of those things personal. Um, speaking of counties, contracting or kind of taking over that that just made me think of after George Floyd happened uh, I I come from a family who everybody knows um, that's ever talked to me or I've been open about I come from a family that does not believe the beliefs that I do as far as politics and lots of things and guns go Um, and I remember a couple of them saying you know complete uh, just disband the Minneapolis police department just get rid of them and you know two two people in my family each had one incident that they grew up you know they, they remembered from growing up where they knew a Minneapolis cop who was maybe less than you know a savory character uh, but then to just you know apply that those two and then obviously the incident in 2020 but I remember one if not both of them saying uh Hennepin County just needs to take over Minneapolis and I'm guessing you have thoughts on how that's possibly not just (laughs) very feasible like that's a big city yeah Yeah, well, it's a huge city. I mean, if um, you know, if the Hennepin County Sheriff's Office was re- prepared to do something like that, obviously that would have to be something that's worked out uh, between them. But you know, I think you know, for the the Minneapolis Police Department, what I will say is, you know, they're probably fifty percent staffed right now. And what I can say for the cops that show up, continue to show up for the city, is nothing short of unbelievable i mean Mm -hmm. it's it speaks to them on an individual level that they have the character 
to maintain their presence in a, in that city, especially after some of the hateful things that have said been, been said about them as an agency. You have to first keep in mind that um, you know we we in law enforcement hire from the human race. We make mistakes. There's no doubt about that, and I think that people uh, society today is is not very good at doling out grace um, you know we it, perfection is expected of us as it should be but there's no grace to there's there's no extension of grace when when we also need it and we're also hurting we're also raising families we also have you know divorces and alcoholism and we we need treatment and just everything that humans deal with we deal with the same thing and then you add in the stress of of dealing with the the difficult job that we do in a difficult environment like minneapolis currently presents uh, it's nothing short of remarkable that those officers continue to show up so just like any other industry i mean my gosh uh, we've uh, you know, my own church. I'm a, I'm a Catholic. We've we've seen the scandals work through the Catholic Church. Priests are human. They're subject to the 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 same <laughs> sins of the rest of us. And so, um, but just like any other industry, we have a small number of folks that will abuse the power and authority that's given to them. They don't see it as the blessing. It's a, I consider it what an honor to have people in our community that allow us to police them. What an honor. And that's an honor that can't be taken lightly. Mm -hmm. And it's a huge responsibility that we never want to destroy that line. And so you do have people that have, whether it's a lack of accountability, um, I think that maybe there there's some, some distrust uh, because they see that over the years there's maybe been a lack of accountability when there is wrongdoing. Uh, you've had people step in in defense of or just kind of they maybe it's maybe it's a measure of discipline that maybe doesn't add up to or equal what the the wrongdoing was. So there's some of that to, to overcome, but I think that they they're working very hard and I can say from the inside out seeing some of the steps that Minneapolis is taking to try to right those wrongs. Well, then they just got hit in the belt again with the DOJ stepping in and saying that these oh, yeah. all these race, racial tendencies are coming out. And, you know, sometimes those are hard to swallow because it certainly uh, makes it sound like it is indicative of every single member of the Minneapolis Police Department when in all reality, folks, you still have 450 cops showing up every single day doing an unbelievably difficult job. And I don't think um, that those tendencies are overtly and widespread. I think that all of that is, has been been blowing up a little bit. Um, and so I guess that's that's what I would say about that from, from the outside looking in, and but also being inside the industry. I think that they've taken and are taking, continue to take great strides in 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 repairing that reputation of the Minneapolis mm-hmm. Police Department, and it really could be the shining jewel of Minnesota. Certainly, the city itself could be if they can establish some sense of safety again. It's the it's the the pride and joy of Minnesota, and so many things to be to to offer, but if they can't get the safety and security when people go down and and visit 
then people aren't going to go and visit. And unfortunately, that affects everything, and that affects certainly the entire state and, and the mm-hmm. demographics of it. So I guess I, I look at it from from several different perspectives, um, but I don't believe that it is widespread. And just like any other industry across humanity, we hire from the human race, we're going to make mistakes. I think the difference with some agencies over others is we own those mistakes. We don't, we don't sweep them under the carpet. We don't make them go away. We, 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 we are very transparent in the sense that we, we hold, we, we have lines of accountability. We hold those lines of accountability and, um, and, and, you know, we, we learn from those mistakes and not to be repeated. And so I think that, um, but again, to, to reiterate, I think they're making great strides, and I think that some of the things that have been said about the Minneapolis Police Department is not always fair because you still have a number of really hardworking, decent people showing up to do a very difficult job um, that would um, make an argument that they probably don't have those those feelings and beliefs, and they've always tried to treat people with dignity and respect even when they haven't received it themselves. So Yeah. Um, the Buffalo Clinic shooter. Are you comfortable talking about that? Certainly. Uh, where is he now? I believe he is in the Stillwater. Okay. Prison. Okay. If you give me a hot second, I can go to my computer and I can find it right with the two seconds. I will pause us. Yes, right. you, are, you are correct then. All right. Thank you for that. It is Stillwater Prison, and that'll be for most likely the remainder of, of his life. I do know that he has got an appeal uh, pending, and uh, we'll, we'll let that process play out. But I am very confident that his status in prison for the rest of his life will not change. Uh, what do you think happened there? in terms of, he was troubled, obviously, but yeah. do you have, it? yeah, I mean, I'm guessing you were, you know, was he, he was known to, I mean, did he have priors and stuff like that? Well, obviously there were some prior threats. Yeah. I, I mean, he had previously threatened to do exactly what he did, yeah. you know, and that's unfortunate, right? When, when, when you have and what I will what I will tell you is it's frustrating being on this side of things um, because when you have the benefit of hindsight, oh, yeah. everything is twenty twenty. Yep. Um, you have to keep in mind, um, I, and I pulled this number, so we respond to somewhere in the neighborhood of ninety thousand calls for service a year um, in Wright County. In Wright County, yes. And so when you put it into context, we receive, you know, if you label something as a threats complaint, over a thousand responds a year or calls for service are threats complaints. And some of them very similar to this, whether it's neighbors, whether it's family members, whether it's people that don't know each other and whether it's road rage. Um, we respond to over a thousand calls for service a year that are threats related. And oftentimes they do become very specific like this. And never before has it been carried out to this context. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, to this context. And so we we obviously 
we all enjoy our constitutional rights. Mm-hmm. And until certain things rise to certain levels, unfortunately, there's sometimes it's limited what we can really do. And sometimes, obviously, if there's an overt threat, that's enforceable and that's a crime. But unless something, you know, crosses that line from, you know, a vague threat to something specific and overt, um, it kind of ties the hands of the county attorney's office who would be prosecuting that crime. Mm-hmm. And even if there are certain crimes established, um, then, you know, obviously I think where you're going is how would he get a gun and is there something that we could have done ahead of time? And I know that there was a lot of conversation about his ability to get a gun. And what I can say about that is, again, we all enjoy certain privileges and certain expectations of privacy. And what was what what's what was really frustrating with that particular case is we couldn't confirm nor deny we couldn't uh, affirm or defend ourselves in that particular matter without giving away his constitutionally protected rights of of privacy with said information mm-hmm. and so I can't get into a great deal of details but I can tell you that um, unfortunately and we can say it and uh, you know sometimes in society there are people and there are circumstances that fall through the cracks was he suffering he was suffering a great deal did we know um, about it to at least some context yes we did Um, but when you look at the parameters that we were given um, could we have done things uh, a lot different no i mean we all have to be vigilant of our surroundings and we all have to be vigilant of our um you know, our areas that we're in, um, are, were there warning signs? Yes, there were warning signs. And unfortunately, this person carried out his threats. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a great, and maybe you've read it, and obviously I'm, <laughs> be clear, I'm not receiving any uh, payment off of <laughs> mentioning this book, but an amazing book by Gavin DeBecker called The Gift of Fear is talks all about your your internal um your your basically your internal uh alarm that tells you when things shouldn't be you know when you should be running the other direction and stuff like that but right. uh, it, it's just a, a really really good book to uh, pick up and read that can help obviously the goal of the book is to help people right when they're in a situation where lots of, you know, sometimes we're at a point in, uh, especially younger people want to push that fear, push that feeling aside when it's literally been there for all of creation to tell you, no, something's not right. Yep. You need to get out. Uh, and obviously I'm not by any means uh, blaming or, you know, not making a comment on that, the, the situation at the clinic, but just bringing but it, up a it's a, but it's a real thing right yeah. in this particular case i mean there were there were cases in his past that were dropped and dismissed because he was found incompetent to stand trial well it's really difficult um, and obviously it, it should go without saying but i will mention it anyway our mental health care system across the country, really across the world right now, is completely broken. Mm-hmm. And there's not enough resources being being given to it. And, you know, obviously, I 
I'll leave the legislature to spend all of our tax dollars. But, you know, it was probably a little disheartening for me to recognize that we had such a huge billions of dollars in surplus money and more of that money was not funneled to our mental health industry um, where that's that, that's where the problem lies is it is a drug addiction that created all the mental health crisis or is it the mental health crisis that's fueling the drug addiction but either way they're oftentimes they're going hand in hand and unfortunately um, we are just un, unfortunately our local jails across the state of Minnesota are becoming mental health hospitals Mm-hmm. And this is, we are not equipped for it. And I mean, we, we do our very best. We, we provide a great deal of services to the folks here in Wright County. Um, and, um, but it's, it's very frustrating because we are not the place for uh, the mental health challenges that we're facing. But mm-hmm. it's, it's our reality right now. And so I think I was, I was probably more disappointed out of this last session that so many things got tackled in the, the direction that it did without truly addressing some of the, the underlying factors. Uh, society is heading into where we're heading because of some of these crises. And nothing was, there was no huge steps with the surplus of money that we had and the spending that they agreed to spend. Um, I think that it was short-sighted that mm-hmm. it did not go where it could have helped more. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, let's get a little bit lighter-hearted here. Please! <laughs> uh, I am a concealed carry permit owner, um, and I remember specifically what our teacher told us when you get pulled over, but I wanted to hear... If you, uh, if you all are along the same lines as what we were taught in class, if you get pulled over and you are legally permitted to carry, what do you all suggest you do if you have either the gun on you concealed or if it's in you know your center console or something like that? What would you suggest? How, how, how do we behave in that situation? And a quick story that I, I thought of, I got pulled over for the first time in a long time, believe it or not. If you were to look at me, you'd think I just stepped out of the jail. Uh, but I got pulled over last fall going to uh, see a debate with Walter Hudson and Eric Lucero up in Elk River. Uh, going too fast, absolutely. Thought it was a 45. It was indeed like a 20 or something, but it was a county-ish road. Uh, so... Um, but he pulled me over and I'm guessing you're trained when someone pulls out their wallet to look to see if they have the permit possibly, but I pulled my wallet out and he noticed my carry permit and he said, are you carrying? And I said, uh, no, I'm not. But then it occurred to me and, and, you know, I mean, he must've believed me and I wasn't, but then it kind of occurred to me, like if I would have been, and I said, yes, would that have totally changed the dynamics of the situation. I was obviously not planning on, nor do I ever plan on doing anything nefarious, uh, especially if I'm pulled over by law enforcement. But it was just kind of the, uh, what are you, what, what are you, what would you prefer people do in Wright County if you were to pull them over and they had their gun on them and they were legally permitted? 
You know, it's interesting. Thank you for asking the question. I love when I walk up to a vehicle that I stop and the driver puts both hands up at the 10 and 2 positions on the steering wheel. And uh, I appreciate that because immediately, because oftentimes we don't, very rarely have I ever pulled somebody over that I walk up and I recognize them. Uh, it's happened a couple of times, but oftentimes it's someone I don't recognize. Mm -hmm. And so immediately that... I, I can bring my guard down a little bit because that person obviously uh, realizes or at least has an appreciation for the job that I'm doing. And I can see that they are not in a position of they're not threatening mm -hmm. at that, at least at that moment. And so what I would tell people is uh, it depends um, if you have your firearm in the center council, your proof of insurance might be in your glove box and your center council will remain closed, there's no reason to, to, to bring it up. Um, but if it's on your, let's say for you, Dan, it's on your right hip and they ask for your driver's license and you have to expose your right hip as you're reaching for your back pocket to your wallet, um, I would say when your hands are up on the steering wheel, just so you know, officer, I have a permit to carry and I'm currently carrying the firearm is on my right hip my wallet is in my right rear pocket. How would you like me to proceed? And then open that conversation. Mm -hmm. sure. That's what it takes is just the conversation. Um, but if your firearm is in your center council and you are going to be asked nine times out of 10 or 10 out of 10 for your driver's license and proof of insurance, if your proof of insurance card is not in your center council and it's going to remain closed, then I wouldn't bring it up. If the deputy or officer asks you, you can say, I have a permit to carry. It's in my center council, mm -hmm. but I got my proof of insurance over here in the glove box. I don't need to open my center council um, and leave it at that. Uh, the vast majority of, of deputies and cops are very supportive of people's constitutional rights. We, we take an oath to protect, uh, to protect your constitutional rights, and we support that. And again, it is not the law-abiding people that have gone through the effort of getting your permit to carry and going through the courses that we worry about. It is mm -hmm. people that don't have that. Um, yes, and to my what I remember from our class was, uh, and what they... Yeah, what, what he told us was to have hands at 10 and 2, have your permit to carry and your license in your middle and index finger. Is that is that something that seems reasonable or would... If, if yeah, if you're carrying on, give you the example, I mean, if you're carrying on your ankle and there's no reason for you to exit your vehicle, there's probably no reason to bring up that you're a permit to carry holder. You, okay. you know what your intentions are. You're not sure. going to hurt anyone. You're not going to use it in an aggressive manner. Then you don't need to bring it up. And But okay. um, I can tell you from a law enforcement perspective, as soon as I walk up to a vehicle and somebody's hands are up at 10 and 2 and it starts with a back and forth conversation, my alert buttons are already going down because I have an understanding that this person at least has an understanding 
of the dangers of my job and they're not going to contribute to those dangers. Mm -hmm. And so I've, I've always appreciated that. What I would tell you if you're ever pulled over at night and it's dark outside anyway, I know that it's annoying and our lights are bright, but that's for our safety, obviously. But if you could reach over and hit the interior light of your oh, vehicle sure. on that and put sense. your hands up there at night, um, that is a huge plus for us. And you are going to bring the atmosphere down um, just by that step yep. alone with the deputy or officer that you're talking to. So I would say, uh, I would tell people that if there is a possibility of the officer or deputy uh, seeing that firearm, it's always beneficial for you to notify them ahead of time versus after they've already seen it. Yeah. I mean, you can work that all out, but there might be a very tense moment in there if sure. they see a firearm yeah. and you haven't been clean about that. So mm -hmm. again, if it's on your right hip or it's somewhere seen, maybe someone has a shoulder holster on and somebody walks up, say, just so you know, I have a permit to carry and I am carrying a firearm. And then, I, I mean, at that point, that, that's happened a few times with me. It's never changed the course of the, the traffic stop. I've never taken it. Just so the listeners do know, um, a law enforcement officer does have the right to take said firearm. So don't be surprised. I've never seen it. I've I've heard, I've, I've helped with a number of permit to carry classes where I've given this same similar advice. One person out of all of the classes that I've ever done have had the, it was a state trooper that did take the firearm for the duration of the traffic mm -hmm. stop and then it was returned to them. Sure. Um, I We do not teach that. We would not um, ask our people to do that. But given, I, I also am not everywhere all the time. I don't know the circumstances, but if that particular officer would feel more comfortable removing the firearm from the interior of that vehicle through the duration of the traffic stop, um, they do have the right to do that by law that's within our purview to do that. But I've, outside of that one time, I've never heard of anyone uh, or any officer removing the firearm uh, from the interior of the vehicle. Cool. Got it. Um, in keeping with that, what are your thoughts on constitutional carry? Well, it's interesting. Um, I, I heard Ted Nugent uh, did an interview one time, and I absolutely loved the entire interview. It was brilliant, and I don't agree with everything that he has to say, and he can be out there on some things, but it was brilliant. He said it doesn't matter where he goes always has his constitutional rights with him. <laughs> First Amendment doesn't matter if you're in a church. It doesn't matter if you're in a school. It doesn't matter if you're in an airport. You always have your First Amendment. It doesn't matter where you are. You always have your Fourth Amendment protections, right? Mm -hmm. Un unlawful searches and seizures. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter where you are. You always have these rights and protections. He's like, why do we, why do we give up the rights and protections of our Second Amendment? I don't have an answer. I can tell you that it's been taken away little bit by little bit by little bit. Uh, constitutional carry, um, I, I would be supportive of that, as you can see, um, without naming a particular business that says no guns allowed and they happen to have an, uh, an active shooter situation there. Um, it doesn't stop somebody... Mm -hmm from doing nefarious things if they're intent on causing harm. 
what it did stop is law-abiding citizens to have the ability to effectuate their own protection. Mm -hmm. And that is, um, that is very frustrating for me. You know, I have a very, I consider myself, I've been a firearms instructor for, you know, over two decades. I have a pretty special set of skills when it comes to, to that and not have that ability to um, protect myself if I were a civilian it would be very frustrating mm-hmm. for, for me. And so I think that, you know, so many things have been lost in the gun uh, gun control debate. And I think the whole thing for me is, is quite maddening, but it has, it has never been um, a large take. It's always baby steps. And mm-hmm. unfortunately you can see, we've got two more laws uh, that, that is not and the problem is is these two laws are not going to make our streets safer they're not going to make our families safer um and but it's just another little piece that they've just taken away from us so we have allowed it to happen to ourselves over the course of time yeah yeah um i was talking to a friend who i believe lives in a constitutional carry state and I and I do remember talking to Kendall Qualls last spring before he had his uh, before he had one of his events up here where he spoke to a bunch of us and he was on board with had he become governor uh, Minnesota becoming a constitutional carry and I kind of it it occurred to me or and and this is just me you know, spitballing that it would seem reasonable to, if you were not going to require people to go take a class, have some incentive where should you pull your gun in a situation, if you had gone to some training, you will, and I don't, not that you wouldn't be held, or you would, I, I don't know if you could receive you could receive help in legal fees, you know, because obviously that's the big thing. And they told us that at the, and you obviously know that too, being an instructor that, I mean, if you ever have to do that in public, I mean, you're looking at huge legal fees on your part, uh, potentially. But just the, the thought of if we, if you, if a state did, or if a Minnesota ever did go to a constitutional carry if you ever had to do that, but you could prove that um, you had gone through specific training, you might be, you know, the, the, the burden or your, your legal fees may be somewhat less than if you just went out and bought a gun and then said, hey, I can carry this now. Well, I, I think that it's, as a responsible gun owner, it would behoove anyone to make sure that they can if you go out and buy a gun and have no intention of ever going out and making sure that you're proficient with it, (laughs) Mm -hmm. please leave the thing at home. Mm -hmm. Um, because you could do more harm than you're trying to prevent you know, certainly. And, um, but you know, I, I think that whether you have a, a legal protection plan or not, um, it's about what did you do and what did you effectuate and Mm -hmm. what was the, you know, if if you inadvertently, you know, were shooting at this, but you hit this and this and this, 
uh, it doesn't matter what protections you yeah. have or what courses. It's all about being a responsible gun owner and making sure that you're proficient with the tools of the trade. And um, I mm-hmm. think that that's, that's the legal trouble. I, I think that, you know, if you successfully take out an assailant that was in the process of attacking people or yourself, uh, there won't be much of a legal challenge with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you, you know, shoot into a crowd and you hurt others, your legal troubles are going to be immense. And so I think it it behooves all of us as responsible gun owners to make sure that if you are going to carry that you are very proficient with it. Yep, yep. Um, You, I believe when we talked a year ago, you had said that Wright County is a Second Amendment sanctuary city. Talk about that, or not city, county. County, yes. You know, to be honest, it was uh, it, it was a political statement. I was very supportive of it. It's a political statement to the state that uh, we support the Second Amendment, um, but in all reality, there's 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 no legal authority that we have more protections than anyone else in the state. Mm-hmm. It was a political statement at the time because at the time there were more discussions of you know gun control and things like that. So certainly, I am very supportive of the Second Amendment and, and people being able to carry. Um, and so it was a political statement, but I, I, it really isn't, doesn't afford us any more protections mm-hmm. than anyone else in the state, to be honest. Got it. Yep, yep, yep. Um, the sheriff is not just another police officer. And I feel like, uh, in, in talking to one of my best friends who's in the Marines, uh, we talked a little while ago, and he kind of went through the, like the the rights. I don't know if you would call them rights, but uh, yeah, you're, I mean, you're not just a normal police officer. There, there are certain things that the sheriff has the ability to do, and I wonder if there are some things that, you know, People might be surprised, not in a bad way, but just like, you know, because history is being lost and no one, you know, we're, we're, our, our, our schools and whatnot are, are not teaching the things they used to. But I, I, I yeah, I wondered if you could speak on the, the duties and the obligations and the rights of a sheriff as opposed to just a normal police officer. Well, uh, there's a stark difference uh, in every county. Uh, as the elected sheriff, I am the chief law enforcement officer in the county, um, which is very different than a police chief. And so mm-hmm. I answer to the people that elected me, and I have a four-year term, mm-hmm. um, where a police chief is an at-will employee to a city council or city administrator. And so if there is ever a conflict and that chief does not see eye to eye with the mayor or city council or city administrator that oversees his day-to-day activities, um, you can see 
you know, COVID, for an example, there were a lot of chiefs that found themselves in hot water with their city councils and mayors because of political differences with mask mandates and, you know, other things that went along with that. We're going to close businesses down. And chief's like, no, I'm not closing businesses down. This is an executive order. I'm not, I'm not touching them. And the city council, maybe it was the opposite way, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but as the sheriff, I tried to be very transparent with the people of Wright County as I was going through the election process. This is who this is who I am. This is who my family is. This is the the principles that I will stand on, and I've tried. To, I've I've stayed very true to um, my compass as it relates to how I have chose to serve mm -hmm. the people of Wright County, and um, so the stark difference is I don't necessarily have a boss, and I say that humbly. I, I'm I'm honored to be in the position that I'm in. And I understand the responsibility that I have, uh, but I'm not an at-will employee. The, the county commissioners are not my boss. The county administrator is not my boss. I am my own boss. I answer to the people that elected me. So I think that's the stark difference. Um, I know that several of your potential listeners um, we've probably been to like uh, Chris Ann Hall. They yep. brought in Chris Ann Hall. She spoke to the constitutional office of the sheriff and mm -hmm. the, the position of sheriff. People would find it interesting that it was the first elected office of the United States. It came from England and it was the position of the sheriff, right? And so that has that has continued to, to morph. I can tell you in Minnesota, there is no constitutional sheriff. Uh, Chris Ann Hall still made a, made a comparison that you're still constitutional. As you're elected, you still uh, serve the people that elected you. Um, but I will tell you that in Minnesota, I have my authority given to me through state statute. Mm -hmm. And as you are aware, what can be given in state statute <laughs> can also be taken away in sure. state statute. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's, what, um, that's why... Uh, we as the 87 sheriffs of Minnesota have a very successful organization, the Minnesota Sheriffs Association, and I'm on the executive board of them. So it's really protecting the office of the sheriff. We have a motto, no sheriff stands alone. If, if a sheriff in another county is dealing with an issue that could be uh, statewide or effectuate the office of the sheriff, MSA is going to step in and, or weigh into that because mm -hmm. there's ramifications that, that can affect us all. Uh, I know that there's been a lot of talk, um, Ramsey County, who is a, uh, a charter county, right? They've, there's been conversations in Ramsey County from time to time about um, basically taking the position of sheriff away. Well, they'd have to have a public meeting to do all of that stuff, uh, very similar to any other uh, county. Uh, but that has huge ramifications in the state because basically what you would be doing is replacing the position of an elected sheriff to a police chief that would then answer to a county administrator or the county board and not necessarily represent the people that elected him to police them, right? And and again, there's there's a difference to those officers that find this as a calling and find it as an honor or believe it to be an honor that we have been allowed by the people we serve to be policed. What an honor to, to do that. And so um, there's fine lines. So I think that's the stark difference is I have been elected by the people. Um, and so that in a sense, they have a voice on how they choose to be policed versus an at-will employee 
um, that will be directed to how they're going to police. And so that's the biggest difference. But statutorily, uh, the sheriff in Minnesota, obviously, we serve all civil papers. We serve all court orders, um, warrants and transports, um, found bodies. All felony investigations can run through the sheriff's office. Our police departments um, conduct most of all of their felony investigations. We've certainly assisted um, on homicide investigations or um, taken lead on homicide investigations. We took the lead on the Alina Clinic incident. So if you look at the resources that the sheriff's office can bring, um, it, you would quickly find that even Buffalo Police Department, um, a very competent police department, is, is, would be significantly challenged taking on an investigation like that and making sure that you know, everything is shored up and completed. I, I can't tell you how many dozens of search warrants that we did and subpoenas to get different records and the interviews alone. Um, it just takes an immense amount of people to do that, and so that's where we're able to 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 come in and 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 help out with that. So, um, but outside of that, you know, we're obviously we are licensed police officers. So anything that a police officer can do, we can do. But we also have the added responsibilities of court orders, felony investigations, and, and other things that we are statutorily obligated to do. The other thing is we are in charge of all the uh, waterways in the county and the trails in Wright County. So ATV accidents, if there's a fatality that we're mandated to investigate that, if there is a body in a lake or a recovery. Um, that's why we have the equipment that we do do have because we're statutorily obligated to have those uh, abilities to to do our, our job. Mm-hmm. So I think I don't know. Does that answer? Yeah. I don't know if that's interesting to, to people or not. But that's there is a there is a stark difference. Yeah. Um, but the biggest one is I'm not an at will employee. As you yep. know, we talked about before we went live. The, you know, the Hennepin County uh, former Hennepin County Sheriff that found himself in a little hot water. That even through that he ended up taking a personal leave of absence, but the county was still paying him. He was elected by the people to serve that four year term. And um, uh, without significant legal challenges um, to remove him, which mm-hmm. wouldn't have happened, um, the, he was he was paid out for the rest of his term, even through that leave. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, most of us take it as as a complete honor, and we would not violate the people's trust like yeah. like that person chose to do. Sure. So, yes, uh, well. I'm out of my questions. We're at a, an hour and 20 minutes, and I'm guessing oh. for you it felt like 10 minutes. This was so fun. Yeah, this was, <laughs> uh, I, well, I, I emailed you when you, when you, you know, um, shared a few of the things that we might be talking about. I'm like, well, this might just be one of the, the funnest interviews that I've <laughs> yeah. done. Well, that's, so. yeah. No, that's good. Uh, do you have anything else you would like to, uh, you know, get out? Any info that you'd want the... Anyone listening to this to know? You know, we, we talked about it real briefly, but obviously this has been a very trying time in the law enforcement industry. And uh, a lot of our deputies and, and officers that are doing the difficult job that they're, they're doing today um, do it 
because they they do believe that they are part of something greater than self. Um, so I think that as people have a, an understanding that, you know, it's it's not the favorite part of our job to stop people and write them a ticket. You know, we're high on fatals again this year. We understand that there's a necessary evil to what we do. We write tickets because we need people to slow down. We need people to stop at stoplights. We need to get people uh, to put their damn, if I can say damn phones down, put your yeah. damn phones down. Uh, distracted driving is is just becoming a ridiculous phenomenon in our society and it is dangerous and our fatal crashes continue to to prove that I mean uh, distracted driving right now is equal to drunken driving and uh, yeah. it's just a horrible challenge that we're facing so once in a while we have to bite we have to give the ticket and um, but it's it's for the greater good um, but I believe that you know um, to, to give a lot of credit to my predecessors and the generations that have come before us in the Wright County Sheriff's Office, we've always had a desire and a heart to serve the community and be a part of that community. And uh, the people of Wright County have shown that, and it, it's come back to us in, in tenfold, the support that they've had uh, for us. Uh, but if you see that deputy out there, go up and give them a fist bump or just thank them for their service, buy that cup of coffee for them, whatever that looks like. Um, but that goes a long ways um, because, you know, we do wear some of the weight of the world on our shoulders. And I can tell you after almost 30 years in, in, in the job that, um, you know, there, there, there is a weight. That, that comes with that and we do wear some of that at home and we do take it home with us and um, so those small gestures of thanks and appreciation go a long way and I, I, I don't think that probably like before in any time in history it's more important to yeah. do it today than it's ever been so no, agreed agreed absolutely okay well I think we're gonna call that a wrap uh, obviously Thank you so much for sitting down for this obnoxiously long amount of time. Uh, but hopefully it is interesting to anyone that's going to listen. Um, what I would ask is that once I post this, uh, if you guys like it, any of our people, um, you know, that are paying attention to the Wright County GOP stuff, share it. Um, and that is it. I'm going to sign off again. Sheriff, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, I'm guessing we'll probably figure out a way to have you on again. And I don't know. Maybe we'll do like a, a half an hour of what's your favorite band and movies and <laughs> stuff like that. We'll it, really, we can keep it on the lighter side. Yes. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll totally humanize you. Yeah. There you <laughs> so, go. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. That is all. It's me, Daniel B., signing off. Bye.